0: This is P.S. Voice, a podcast series featuring Project Syndicate writers, leading economists, leaders, Nobel laureates, researchers, and more, in conversation with the editors of newspapers that publish them. In today's show, Jim O'Neill, chairman of the Review on Antimicrobial Resistance, outlines the impending public health crisis threatened by superbugs and the steps that must be taken to combat it.
1: I'm Anatole Koletsky, a PS contributor myself, and our guest today is Lord O'Neill, former chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management and chairman of the Review on Antimicrobial Resistance, which was commissioned by the British government and the Wellcome Foundation and reported in September. To discuss this issue, we have Leonardo Mezzano of Il Sole 24 Ore, the leading Italian financial newspaper, and Lord O'Neill today. Jim, you've identified and the government and others have identified AMR as really one of the biggest challenges not to any just any particular country but to humanity yeah. over the coming decades yeah. uh, there has been some progress there's been a UN resolution on it but yeah. how much evidence is there that there's some kind of real momentum building up to tackle this yeah. issue
2: that's the the hundred trillion dollar question uh, I say a hundred trillion trillion because we identified The loss to global economic output over the next 35 years could be 100 trillion if we don't do something about it. Um, (coughs) Let me just say, this is one of the most stimulating things I've ever been lucky enough to do in my professional life. Could
1: you just describe in a nutshell what the problem really is?
2: The the, the problem is is multifold, but at the core of it, it's our growing resistance to antibiotics. Uh, We've all grown up in a generation where we had this miracle cure antibiotic and we now think of them almost like sweets so we take them for anything and we we misuse them uh the diagnose the wrong time and we we're in, because of that general behavior and especially because of how we're using them so freely in animals we're all becoming more and more resistant to them so if we run out of uh, effective antibiotics it's going to cause utter chaos and, and many things that we take for granted maybe even even a little graze on the knee it could end up killing us.
3: Yeah, and in this uh, uh, report that uh, you, have been, uh, you have been doing, uh, uh, did you find support from the big pharmaceutical companies? <laughs> Which was this kind of dynamics between your uh, government gosh. and the government you were part so of? So
2: let, uh, let me say, make it clear for the viewers, I, I, I led this as an independent person. Even though I was asked by David Cameron to yeah. do it, I was actually doing it before okay. I came a minister. And then I, when I became a minister I insisted that I would only do so if I could carry on doing this because it became so uh, important to my, to my beliefs okay. and I, I've become very passionate about it. Uh, second thing to say is I learned pretty early on that the, the medical specialist's knowledge and awareness of the issues w- was profound and I, I jokingly say to some of the people that asked me to do it, well, why do you need me, everybody knows mm. all the issues.
1: A question we were going to ask you, why are you...
2: And the answer is you need to set people out of the comfort zone. And that's true about policy makers, it's true about doctors, it's true about everybody, including pharmaceutical companies. And at the core of why I was asked, because you really, to solve it, you need to think of it as an economic and financial problem and not a health one. And, and it's a, in some ways, it's a classic market failure, externality type issue, where the pharmaceutical industry regards it as... Uh, uneconomic and too expensive and too high risk for them to bother. So part of the challenge is trying to think of new incentives or new uh, rewards or new punishments Mm -hmm. uh, for the pharmaceutical industry unless they're going to treat it more seriously. Because as I learned in the early days of this, and I I don't mean it to be rude in this sense, but in many ways, pharmaceutical companies, in my judgment, are, are sort of like big banks, very good at managing the balance sheets, but importantly, happen to be the only people that know how to manufacture pills. So you need them. Uh, and without them, you can't do it. Will you keep following
3: the issue now?
2: Uh, so as a review, we, we've come to an end. Mm. Uh, but because uh, our review, which, where we had 27 specific ideas, has kicked off momentum in a whole slew of different areas, it's sort of becoming impossible for us to stop. Mm-hmm. So. In the past three weeks since I stepped down from the government, I've spent a lot of time involved in various uh, uh, discussions about AMR. The German government is the next host of the G20 presidency. I spent a day and a half in Berlin a hmm. uh, week before last with them about what they're going to They basically accepted the, the, the challenge from the, the Chinese G20 yeah. to come up with a new model for how to get new drugs. And so they've got an eight-month window. Interestingly, because of the German election, the G20 for Germany is next June, so it's only eight months.
1: What is the essence of the problem on the uh, drug development side? Why is it that pharmaceutical companies don't seem to want to develop these uh, powerful antimicrobial drugs, which, as you said, are so clearly needed in the world?
2: So the essence of the problem is it's really difficult to medically or scientifically find the right drugs. Uh, it, it can take over 20 years to do it, and so it's very time consuming, and because of that, it's very expensive. It's uh, because,
1: because what you said in your report was, yes, it's difficult, but you're pretty confident that the science is there to develop these drugs, but it's a matter
2: of cost, right? So, so because of the time and the success rate of getting the right drug, it's at least a billion dollars. Right. We estimated somewhere between one and two. So that needs to be recognized per drug, per drug, drug yeah, for, for so-called gram negatives yeah, in particular, yeah, the yeah, ones that we really yeah. need. And so one of our recommended uh, ideas that is under consideration is what we call the market entry reward, which would actually give a lump sum prize on evidence of success of the right new drug. And so that would be enough, as, to put it in, in, in layman's terms, to get, to get the pharmaceutical companies out of bed in the morning mm. if they knew they were going to get all their costs covered they might consider doing it, but if it's a, a billion and a half that they could otherwise spend on something for oncology where they know they're going to be able to attract very high prices, in their own sort of narrow mind, why would you do that? And the
1: point you made was that they can't recoup the one and a half billion or two billion from these AMR drugs because uh, they're not put into widespread use yeah. until uh, all other drugs have failed and by that time they often go out of patent. so Exactly so. so. so And that's why you're suggesting this public policy intervention of you know billion dollar rewards uh, from governments to these drug companies. What kind of response have you had to that from the governments that would have to find the money? So
2: the really interesting bit, and the bit where all the controversy is, is is where does that money come from? And and induced with uh, a conversation with uh, a couple of uh, public servants actually, uh, is 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 an idea that we promoted what you might describe as pay or play. So for the pharmaceutical companies that are prepared to do this and end up being successful, they get this money. But the pharmaceutical companies that stick in what I described as a rather rigid position, that this is just not interesting for us. We've got better uses of our capital. We recommended one thing for that governments can consider is actually a small surcharge on their overall pharmaceutical sales. So by doing that, you could raise all the money in the pot to actually reward those uh, that are prepared to do it, and that's got some kind of, not surprisingly, some kind of mileage
3: in the minds of some policymakers. You mentioned Germany before. Is there any, uh, any other country you've been in touch of that is uh, been active on this issue? Uh, as I travel around the world, and I
2: went to all the BRICS countries because if they don't uh, get involved and solve it, it the, the, you know that's another reason why the BRICS countries won't won't be able to do what they otherwise will. In terms of other countries, not surprisingly, the Scandinavians. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that sc- Scandinavian countries seem to be so progressive in so many aspects of life, but in terms of coming up with their own domestic policy solutions to this problem, the Scandinavian countries are probably ahead of most. Uh, in the emerging world, very importantly, because it's a huge problem for them, not surprisingly, we couldn't have got the agreement we had at the G20 for, new, for the principle of new drugs or aspects of the uh, UN agreement without, the, the, interestingly, the role that supports support of South Africa. Uh, They are enormously challenged it because of a particular TB, but they played an important role.
1: Now, one of the things that I thought your report really clarified is that this is a problem, and being an economist, I guess this is why you saw it, that has a supply side, there aren't enough drugs uh, coming out there, but also very importantly, perhaps even more importantly, a demand side. uh, There are too many antibiotics being used uh, around the world. In human and even more bizarrely yeah, I mean in it's. animal uh, medicine and so on, just describe that and describe yeah. the role of hygiene. In this yeah, so Anatol,
2: yeah. you got it, you got it bang on. You know, and I, I was asked to do it as an economist and a finance person, so that's how we did it. And we ended up with a, a broad set of ten interventions, five and a half of them what I would call demand-reducing interventions, four and a half of them were supply-boosting. The, the half in each was actually the role of vaccines. Mm-hmm. So if you can develop. Uh, effective vaccines that obviously uh, boost the supply of uh, treatable ways of okay. dealing with it but in itself that would dramatically reduce the demand for antibiotics i often get asked what would be the single biggest intervention that would really make a difference and it's nothing to do with new drugs it's what i call google for doctors we need to have uh, state-of-the-art diagnostics we all we're, our lives or our kids lives are completely dominated by mobile technology We live in a world in in the health space where where, where doctors and clinicians essentially have an educated guess whether we need an antibiotic or not. It's sort of ludicrous.
1: Bernardo, last question, last quick question.
3: No, the last question is first of all, which is the next step? What do you expect now? Now, the report has been finalized, the UN is at the end now which is the next step that you see in this so the
2: next big thing is going to be uh, the German G20 in June the Germans have taken on board this this, this goal of coming up with a, an agreed framework for how you get new drugs it's, it's eight months time which in, in, in the diplomatic world you guys know is a pretty short time mm-hmm. uh, and I'm going to try and play a role of holding the German government to accounts because they, you know, they wanted to do it and so they've got to get on and do it uh, and I think that is a really big moment Uh, At the UN, as part of their statement, they they agreed some kind of mechanism for coordination across uh, the big three uh, health agencies, the WHO, FAO and OIE, and it's going to be really important that the new Secretary General that comes in, I think it's in the early part of the new year, actually presides over making sure that happens.
1: Well, Jim, that's a great challenge and a very worthwhile one for you to be taking on. Thank you very much for joining us here, and thank you for joining us here on PS On Air.
0: Can I ask one question? For ordinary citizens, how would you stem or set back this global crisis?
2: How would you, how would so you, how you reduce would you it?
0: stem or set back this oncoming global crisis? What can so anyone a, do?
2: So an individual person should think before they want to go and visit their doctor because they've got a headache or an earache, do I really want to pressurize my doctor into giving me an antibiotic? Do I really need an antibiotic? Could I just not spend a couple of days dealing with a little bit of pain and then actually being healthy without the need for any kind of antibiotic? That's probably the single most important thing an individual can do. Just ask yourself, do I? really know that I need an antibiotic.
1: And could I just butt in with an additional suggestion which comes straight out of Jim's report. When you're eating meat, consider whether it's it's stuffed full of antibiotics, because what causes this antimicrobial resistance is the excessive use of antibiotics across the environment, which in turn develops germs that are resistant to them. And and one of the things that amazed me about your report, you said I think 70% of the antibiotics are actually used in agriculture in the United States.
2: In the U.S. I mean, one of the things that... uh, we, we joke about, as a group, is we call it the Shake Shack factor. There's a, there's a slightly uh, encouraging development that's occurred during the two years of our review. That uh, uh, There's a, there's a, a food, uh, primarily burger uh, company called Shake Shack, that has become very fashionable and desirable amongst the younger generation. And amongst uh, the important things, and why I say it, is they don't use antibiotic fed meat. And it's threatening the market share, not because of that, I don't think, because it's so fashionable of some of the big food-producing companies, which is forcing them to think about it. So we need everybody to embrace Shake Shack. Uh, And I have no shares in Shake Shack.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening to PS Voice. Go beyond the news with Project Syndicate by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and by reading our greatest minds at www.project-syndicate.org.